Welcome back or welcome to another episode of Success Times Happiness. I am Richard Thompson and after a couple of weeks of really amazing guests in Matthew Heyman and Adriano Zumbo, we have decided to have a solo episode and it's been a little bit of time to get to this place, but this is essentially the Ultraman uh, sub 20 debrief and where I'm now, the feelings that what happened on race week, what happened on race on the, during the race itself and where I'm sitting at the moment and what the future looks like. So if, uh, if that isn't something you're keen on, uh, find another rep to, uh, to enjoy. But I thought that this would be a good opportunity to get my thoughts down and hopefully someone can take something from it. Thank you very much for tuning in and listening. I really, really appreciate that. If there's one thing that I'd love for, for this uh, show to do is to get to more ears and more eyes. So if there's someone in your life that you think would really value this, uh, this story or this episode or any of the episodes we've done, I would encourage you so much to share it um, and, and let us know as well how much you enjoy it or what you're looking for. So race week itself, I came down with a cold um, I think Monday, Tuesday, we recorded here on the Monday and I was okay. And then Tuesday got progressively worse. I went out to dinner with Cody, Marcus, the director of the film, um, <clears throat> Michelle and my mom, uh, on the Wednesday night, I think it was. And I was really bad. I got zero sleep that night. Nose was really, really running. Um, and I had a cough. Didn't think I was okay. I didn't think too much of that. And then um, it was actually getting, I thought it was getting better. I turned up on the Friday for race briefing. I'm still audibly cold, head cold, but uh, feeling a lot better than I was. And then Saturday came and um, feeling ready and fine. Gun went off, uh, swimming with the front guys in the water for the first half an hour. I could feel my chest getting tight and just feeling quite lethargic to be honest. Didn't feel like I was uh, short of breath or anything, but just just didn't feel great generally. And then um, as I was trying to uh, get through the swim, it was progressively getting worse. Um, and and then got out of the water, people were suggesting that I looked like, I looked really pale and didn't I didn't feel very strong generally. And uh, hopped on the bike, numbers were, <laughs> numbers were atrocious. It annoys me that I am sitting here reminiscing on what I did in training and what I didn't do in the race. But it's worse, I think, because I didn't get a chance like on a health level. Um, so anyway, I got onto the bike. Numbers were terrible. In training, I held 300 watts for day for the day one reconnaissance. On race day, I could only muster 250. It was a fair chunk. It was a 20% drop in power. Um, and that wasn't great. And I wasn't feeling great. And essentially every time I tried to push more power, my lungs started to hurt. Um, got home, the, the boys got me back to the finish line. I wasn't necessarily, I was sort of so accepting of on that day. So accepting of the situation that we were in. And, uh, but I thought I'd just get home, get, get back to the house and see what, see what's happening basically. And, coughing up hunks of shit out of my lungs that night, that over the night and in the morning. Um, but I thought, but physically I was okay in terms of muscles, right? Cause you haven't done a lot physically, uh, in terms of 
riding or swimming to your potential. So we sat down and we were in the sauna that night and with Rich Burrows and my team and we basically had a plan of, well, it wasn't about trying to win. It never really has been about trying to win. It was always just about breaking 20 hours and we knew that that would be possible. Um, and so the goal was going into day two. It was like, okay, well, we're not great. We're not healthy. But the goal is still trying to break 20 hours. And so we manifested a plan to do that, which was a, quite a camp, was, was a, would have been a very, very hard task to do still from that position. But the goal hadn't changed and we just had to trust ourselves and, and hoped that the health would play ball. So morning came, uh, the gun went off, we went off and physically feeling fine, legs felt fresh and power numbers were actually pretty good. And back, you know, back to being pretty good. Um, so I was optimistic about that. I was holding 40k an hour for the first two hours, and but as the as I was needing to increase the power, my obviously your heart rate increases, and it was like 140 early on, and I knew that I needed to sit at 150 to 160 beats per minute for the remaining four and a half hours so or four hours so but every time i got into the 150s and that isn't necessarily too high but as soon as i got into the 150s high 150s low 160s i could feel my lungs really burning and it being quite quite uncomfortable uh in that level so i wasn't breathing well and uh, at that point i wasn't breathing well even at 140 after two hours of riding so uh we made the decision that it wasn't going like we weren't going to be able to reach our potential. So we made the decision or I made the decision to put health first. And I, my history is I've, I've had two serious cases of pneumonia where I've been hospitalized, um, and coughing up blood. And so, and that was in my twenties. So I'm, I'm probably more prone to, uh, reacting because of that history, but went to the doctors that afternoon um, she didn't think it was needing an X-ray. My chest didn't need an X-ray because she could hear the fluid in my lungs um, and thought that uh, for me to try three different types of antibiotics um, all, all at once and if it wasn't any better within 48 hours to go to hospital. So we did that. I was able to get out on the course on Monday and see Simon and everyone else do their thing. Which I was trying to keep my distance because there was um, still a possibility that I was going to be COVID positive. Bittersweet, obviously, to be out on the course, but something that was important to do. And uh, But yeah, within 48 hours, or I think it was three days, my lungs came good or better. And by seven or 10 days, I was 100% healthy. So kudos to Simon for breaking, for winning and breaking 20 hours. That was a, it was an incredible effort um, by him. Um, and everyone else who had finished that race. Um, it's the first race that I have DNF'd in my career since I was 18. Uh, actually, I think I did one at one other one where I got a flat tire and I couldn't actually, didn't have the means to, to blow up, to, to inflate a spare. So that was my other DNF, but um, haven't actually DNF'd due to medical reasons um, before. So for that to happen uh, when when it mattered the most, uh, took a little bit to, um, to digest. I was in a whole, like a mentally, uh, challenging place for about a week where there was part of me that was in shock, a little bit disbelief that it was all done and 
we didn't achieve what I very much believed I could and very much visualized for many, many months that would happen. And so to sit back and go, oh, that's done. And not have, I guess, not have the physical exertion of getting through an Ultraman to go to remind yourself that you've done that race to be totally normal, less, you know, less tired than in training and to go, oh, that was that, that was the opportunity, but we didn't take it, um, was really hard. I think whenever you have a goal and you don't achieve that, you, you sort of sit in that place of not really knowing how to feel or what you feel, but I've learned through the last few years of, of my life is to really, you just have to feel it. You have to just sit. Tim Grover of who used to be Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant's strength and conditioning coach. He talks about the idea of when life punches you in the face and you get temporarily put on the floor is to sit there. There's an idea of get straight back up and back on the horse, but he, Tim talks about just taste the canvas, taste the floor, just sit there for a little bit and embrace how uncomfortable, how challenging, just how shit it is to be in that position because that you don't want to be blind to that. You don't want to be so repelled by that. You like you, you are repelled to be there, but just to, just to pause there for a moment um, and be okay with it, but I guess, but just to know how shit it feels because it then will drive you to not want to feel like that ever again. So that's certainly what that week was, um, was like, okay, I don't know what this means or where to go from here. And, but it sucks. It really sucks. And there are a lot of amazing people in my life who reached out, you know, not only the inner circle, just general people in the world who reached out uh, like three or four days later after the dust settled to make sure I was okay. And that's like proper understanding of the human condition to be able to do that. Uh, and I'm guilty of not doing that for others. And I feel, you know, there's a fair amount of guilt about that where something happens to my friend that would be, would be pretty bad for them or rough for them. And I reach out initially and then move on with life. But the idea of someone to, you know, a week later uh, after the 24-hour social media feeds go and expire, they reach out a week later going, hey, I'm still thinking of you. I'm making sure you're okay. It is just so beautiful. Um, and so, I, yeah, I'm indebted to, to, to those people just to understand what it's like to be human. And I, and I believe that those people are strong moral character and strong humility and, and has this, have a sense of humanity about them. And um, it's, it's, it was beautiful to, to be part of that. So yeah, the emotions were real and strong and the initial response, even with, despite the fact of how much trauma I've I've sort of been exposed to over maybe the last few years. The response for me was so interesting was like throw all the toys out of the cot immediately within that week. So I'd, the idea, and I had certainly done this before where you sell everything in the garage. Like I'm properly done from the sport. Uh, I reached out to my old boss in, uh, in law and asked her whether there's any part-time legal work or solicitor work anywhere on the coast that I can work. And that was like my original, that was like my immediate response was like, this is, this is too challenging. That was my original response. I had even set up a meeting with 
uh, prospective law firm to work at, uh, all within seven days of of that disappointment at Ultraman Australia, which is so interesting as like the human response of just like, I just want to run away from this. I just want to, this is just too challenging. This is really hard. Upon reflection, I understood that for a long time, even in the small capacity of my network or my small sphere of the people that know me or know the journey, I've been singing very loudly the idea of setting big goals, goals that scare you, goals that you know you don't think as possible for us, which was breaking 20 hours. But we knew, we thought we could, definitely thought we could. But there was still a big goal, still everything had to go right. And then also giving people, trying to help people with confidence and being able to put it out there. Like someone who commented to me after the race was like, I, he didn't have confidence. He didn't have the ability to tell his wife his projected marathon time in case he failed. So there's a lot of people out there who don't set big goals or if they do keep it to themselves for fear of uh, failure and fear of letting down ex- people's expectations. So I knew that I was in this position now of he talks about setting big goals. He's now failed to achieve that goal. I understood that there was an obligation on me to do something worthwhile in the face of defeat or the face of failure. Because if I'm the one that has been spruiking this and I'm the one then that throws the toys out of the cot, sells up everything and moves on. It doesn't provide any sort of strength to the previous position of you've got to set big goals and you've got to go after it and you've got to tell the world or tell people until you're in a circle because that is where growth occurs, right? That's, that's my position. But for a big goal to occur, there has to be, by virtue of the goal itself being large, you have to accept that there's a possibility of failure. Otherwise, it's not a goal or it's not a big goal. You making the bed, your bed of a morning is not a big goal because there's very little sacrifice and there's very little things that could go wrong in you achieving that. For a big goal to occur, it's only big in my view because of the sacrifice needed to achieve and there is a very present possibility of failure. And so I am now living in that failure part of the of the equation. And so it's very, yeah, it becomes very obvious to me that what is bestowed on me now is uh, a beautiful opportunity to show to people and to inspire people what to do in the face of failure. And that's where I'm at at the moment. I sit here recording maybe, what is it, a month? Yeah, just over a month uh, since the race. And I still am not certain uh, as to what, how the next three, six, nine, 12 months of my life look. And I put this on Instagram. The one thing that is very, that brings it back, like the one thing that I've done in my past has been, when you're at a really critical life decision of what do you want to do with your life or do you want to stay in a particular relationship or do you want to choose a job or what, you know, whatever the critical crossroad is, is to understand what your values are. And down this, and I pay homage to you, man, uh, Justin McNamara um, and, and Greg Layton for helping me or inspiring me to use this process, but it's the value 
it's it's the value recognition exercise. So anyone can do this. You go on to Google, ask Google for a list of, you know, 200 human values. So you've got all that list there. You simply go through, it's just basically whittling it down to 10. So what are the 10 most prominent values that you, uh, are true, you know, you, you resonate with? And you can do that whichever way you want. I, you, I've got, the, the exercise that I did was essentially highlight the ones that have any sort of connection to me out of the 200. Then you get those lists and you split those lists into two being very important and just important. Out of the very important list, depending on how many are left, you rank them uh, in order. Uh, one, or no, sorry, you rank them out of 10 uh, as to 10 is critically, like un, uh, unconditionally important to one being important, but not that important, I guess. And then you get, so then you have a list of, then you can basically pick out 10 out of that list that are your 10 prominent values. And out of that 10, you want to find two that you want to lynch your life on. And you'll, you'll realize that if you nail those two, those, the rest of the eight will, will happen by virtue of, of those two. For me, the two were making a difference and integrity. They are the two benchmark values that I live my life by. The eight remaining ones were excellence, growth, kindness, learning, peace, love, honesty, and wealth. So how that helps is that when I make a decision going forward as to what I want to do with my life, where I want to go, do I want to race again? Do I want to keep coaching people in triathlon? Uh, do I like whatever it is I want to do, you do it. I do it with the view of integrity and even parenting or, or relationships or anything. It's integrity and making a difference. And they're the two ones followed by those eight. So I'll wrap this up, but essentially that was the experience, uh, for Ultraman. Um, and I'm, it's still, I still ground my teeth at it. Um, but I, I'm still, and I'm still in the process of understanding what, uh, success looks like for me now going forward. But the, uh, the value recognition exercise is, is really, I find really refreshing and real and, and so critical to where we go next. Um, so I, I would, I would definitely encourage anybody to, if you're lost a little bit with career direction, life choices, go back to your values, right? And it, when you, if you become anxious about anything, just go back to your values and find your two feet on the ground, find your own foundation with those two. And as long as you follow those values, then you can't go wrong. You might have to have awkward conversations. You might have to have difficult chats with people whenever your values are compromised, but they're yours. And that's what, that's what creates an amazing relationship with yourself and creates almost, it becomes easier to make big decisions because it's not, should I do that or shouldn't I? It's how much does that align with my values? And if it is wholly aligned with your values, then it's a big thumbs up. Let's go do that. But when it's compromising some of them, then it becomes a bit more clearer as to you probably shouldn't do that and try to find something. And you should be finding something else that, that does align with them. I appreciate your, your attention, uh, way more than you think. It's been amazing. Even this is episode 10. I've already got us some, um, really, really cool guests booked and ready to interview. So thank you very much. And, uh, I again ask that 
you just pass on these episodes as and when you see fit to people that you think would benefit. So thank you very much for listening. And until next time, peace. Thank you.